Hi, this is Sarit Schwetzer, and welcome to the It Is Taught podcast, a podcast devoted to the teachings of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, as recorded in his most famous work, the Tanya. My hope for this show is to make these teachings accessible and relatable to the average person, regardless of prior Jewish education or affiliation. The episodes follow the prescribed daily study portions and are meant to serve as practical lessons in how to live your life as your true self and develop an authentic and powerful relationship with your creator. I have personally experienced the effects the study of this work has had on me, and I'm excited to share what I can of this knowledge with you. So please join me on this journey of learning, self-growth, and connection with your source. Hi, and welcome to the It Is Top podcast. This is episode 425 for the 28th of Tevez in a regular year. There's a really interesting book, which I read several years ago, called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. If I'm not sure if I'm saying his last name correctly, but whatever. It was a really, really interesting book. And as you can imagine from the title, it's it's a book that really you know talks about the power of habit, of, uh, of how to develop good habits, why do we have bad habits, what to do about them, how do we develop more agency over our behaviors, What to what extent do we have agency over our behaviors. A lot of things that if you've been following along the Tanya so far lately, then you, you see that we've been talking about these things in the past few episodes of the Tanya. What is, how much human agency do we have? What is what do we have control over? What do we not have control over in terms of ourselves? So there are two really interesting cases that are brought in the book that are sort of brought in like a co- contrast to one another uh, in the discussion of human agency. The first uh, case is about a man who unfortunately suffered from sleep terrors. What are sleep terrors? So sleep terrors are really, really frightening. It's not, it's not, it might sound like it, like a sleep terror is like a nightmare. So it's actually much worse than a nightmare because with a sleep terror, there's an element that's very similar to sleepwalking in the sense that the person is actually moving around, maybe screaming, maybe um, maybe walking, you know, moving their hands or whatever, but they're asleep. And, they're, and the way that they're acting really appears as if they're in great danger or that they're in great experiencing a great amount of anxiety or fear. Uh, and but the person is actually in a really deep sleep, so they're not conscious of what they're doing, even though it might look like from the outside that they are. So in the year 2008, a man by the name of Brian Thomas, as described in this book, The Power of Habit, was experiencing a sleep terror next to his wife. And unfortunately, during this time, during his sleep, he was having a nightmare. And in the nightmare, he thought that for some reason he imagined that there was a burglar present who was trying to attack his wife. And so he went and he, and in real time while he was sleeping, he went and strangled this so-called burglar that he thought was attacking his wife. Unfortunately, what was really happening is Brian Thomas was strangling his wife and he ended up killing his wife, unfortunately. And it was really, really sad. And, you know, when when Brian Thomas woke up the next morning, he realized what had happened. He immediately called the police and he turned himself in and he was devastated. And at the end of the day, there was, you know, um, a court case about it. And 
the court ended up letting Brian off the hook because they realized that he was in the state of having a sleep terror and he absolutely had not had agency over what he was doing at the time. He loved his wife dearly. He did not want to kill her, even in the smallest degree. And in fact, from what I remember, this was actually the first time, even though he experienced many sleep terrors, this was the first time that he acted out in such a way that was a danger to himself or to others. So it really was outside of his control. That was the ruling of the court. By contrast, the power of habit brings another story, which actually coincidentally happened around a similar time, where there was this woman named Angie Bachman who became addicted to gambling. And the the power of habit in the book, the, the description of her spiral into addiction is described uh, in pretty great detail about how it was that it started, how it escalated. So it started out with her being this bored housewife who just had never gambled before in her life and decided to just for fun one afternoon to check out the local casino. And it was very limited. It was very, very minute, um, very harmless you know, not, no big deal. People go to casinos all the time, right? And it was like slowly, slowly, it turned into a, a habit and it which eventually turned into a gambling addiction that took over her life. And she even at some point realized that she had a problem and she tried to get help for the problem. She actually was clean for a little while until her parents passed away and she got their inheritance and she ended up blowing the whole thing in gambling, unfortunately. And the way that these casinos work, unfortunately, is that they really lure in people like this. This is, you know, they have tricks and, and psychological manipulations to really get people like this to become more and more entrenched in their addiction. And it got to the point that that Angie ended up borrowing money to feed her addiction and she ended up not being able to support her addiction and the casino ended up suing her for half a million dollars which she wasn't able to pay back and she was found guilty. So now the discussion in the book is what's the difference between the two cases? You know, like people often refer to addiction as being a disease. We see that addicts at a certain point, you know, yesterday we spoke about this idea of like not being able to help yourself and how, uh, how when we say this phrase, I couldn't help myself, that this isn't true and we do have agency over our actions. But at the same time, there's a recognition and I even mentioned it yesterday that there's, there's an exception to this rule. Certain people have certain diseases, whether it's obsessive compulsive disorder or actual addiction where we can actually argue that the person does not have control over their behavior and they really don't. And it's really, it's, it's nebuch when you see these people who they want to get better, they want to get well. You know, I recently read a, a whole book about addiction that discussed this and it's just like the recovery rate for addicts is so small and it's so unfortunate. And so can we truly say that these people also have agency over their lives, over their behaviors? And if not, why was she uh, given the verdict of guilty? Was this a proper verdict? Should they have just let her off the hook, just like they let the, the man off the hook who murdered his wife inadvertently in his sleep? So what's the difference, right? So we kind of all sense that there's a difference somehow, that as much as like we might feel sympathy for this woman, you know, and her addiction, do we really believe that she should just get away with not paying the casino back half a million dollars for destroying her family, for ruining uh, her inheritance from her parents, like blowing it all on gambling? Should she really get away scot-free the way that that man got away scot-free for murdering his wife, which it's such a tragedy, but we sort of do have this natural feeling of, of uh, a forgiveness towards him, of empathy towards him? 
So what's the difference and what's going on? So this is going to be the discussion in today's Tanya, believe it or not, about this idea of how, well, yes, we do all have agency and we truly do all have agency and, and respo- responsibility for our actions. There is a way to actually lose this sense of agency. This is so the altar, but doesn't explicitly mention in an addict here. But I think that an addict is a really apt uh, way to understand this idea of loss of agency, to understand the persona of what the ultra but calls a Russia. And you'll see that as we go further into the Tanya, I actually bring up this idea of addiction quite a lot because I think that um, it's a really great way to understand the dynamic of, of, of these characters in the Tanya. And at the same time, we can also acknowledge the fact that on a certain level, to a certain extent, all of us are addicts. Every abandony is kind of like an addict in recovery on a certain level. And you'll see what I mean as we get further into the Tanya. But so for today, we're going to be talking about in the in the Altrabis Lashon, in the Altrabis language, about this category of people who actually do not have agency over their behaviors anymore. And this is um, and this is a punishment to them for things that they've already done. So sort of like, you know, before before we get into the text and see how the ultra bit explains it, just like kind of if we think about this example of this woman, this gambling addict, Angie, the, the kind of intuitively, like the answer that a lot of us might give to why we do hold her responsible is because, okay, maybe at the very end, she didn't have any more agency over her behaviors, but there were moments much earlier on where she did, you know, and, and where she could have chosen not to go to the casino, you know, like way in the beginning, she decided to go to the casino. That was her decision. That was within her agency. And while, yes, it wasn't a problem right away, at a certain point, there's always that point where there's like a point of no return. And that's a time that we all need to be aware of. And this is the idea of like really seeing ourselves as kirasha, like as if we are a wicked person. We all have to know that we have that tendency within us. We all have the tendency to fall to a place of no return, God forbid. And this is something that we need to be on top of constantly to not get anywhere near that place, to constantly use our agency, to constantly use our power of free will. So let's get into the text and see how the Altar Rabbi explains this in his terminology. And we'll kind of try to tie it all in uh, at the uh, together with, with everything that I've been speaking about so far. So for context, today we're going to be concluding chapter 17, which we began yesterday. And yesterday, uh, towards the end of the episode, we we started, we discussed this idea that for Abenani, uh, their mind naturally rules over their heart, which is what gives them the ability to never sin in thought, speech, or action against God. Now today, the ultra begins this section by contrasting this with the state of the Rasha, the state of the wicked person who um, does not have this ability to have their mind rule over their heart. In fact, according to the sages, the ultra says, uh, the Rashaim are at the mercy of their heart they are totally subjugated to their heart, like to, to their whims and their desires and stuff like that. And furthermore, says the ultra Rabbi, this is actually a punishment for the intensity of their sin. So it's sort of like going back to the analogy of the addict, of the gambling addict, let's say. So the way it kind of works is like, it's very similar to the idea of, of sinning, that in the beginning, you know, the person, the, the woman we're describing was in full agency. She could decide in the morning, does she want to go to the casino? Does she not want to go to the casino? But because she kept choosing to go to the casino over and over and over again, eventually her choice was taken away from her and eventually she became a slave to this. So it's sort of like we can choose what we want to become a slave to. So if we choose to worship God, 
then enough times this will become, if we do this over and over enough times, this eventually will become habit. And even though this is still going to require a good amount of work, we will have the capacity to choose this and we'll have the capacity to, to hold on to our agency versus if a person, God forbid, chooses over and over to do something which is against the will of God, then eventually God will take away their choice entirely. And so the altar rabbi says that these kind of people who, you know, these Rashaim are actually um, considered to be dead. And that this is not what the Torah was talking about. When the Torah said, going back to yesterday, where we said that this thing is very near to you, this is not speaking about dead people, quote unquote. And so what do we mean that they're dead? Because um, Rashaim are considered dead even dur during their lifetime. There's a principle about this uh, in in uh, the Gemara. It talks about this. This is in Masechet Brachos, page 18b, uh, where, you know, somebody who's, we're going to talk about this further on in Tanya as well, but somebody who's like not living in, in accordance with the will of their creator, it's basically as if they're not alive because they're not um really having their vitality flow through them in a full and and clear way so thus this is not the type of people that the torah was speaking of when it said that this thing is very near to you so in this case keeping this in mind that for rashaim they do not have the ability to have their mind rule over their heart the way a benoni does so if a rasha wants to suddenly start um, serving god they will first have to do tshuva on the past, on the deeds of the past. So what does that mean, tshuva? So tshuva is a whole topic of its own, right? We're actually going to devote, there's a whole uh, section in the Tanya that's devoted to tshuva that's coming up later on, igarasa tshuva. But here the ultra tells us that this this process of tshuva is actually really necessary and intrinsic to, uh, to a rasha if they want to now decide to serve God. It's not enough to just have their minds rule over their heart. They need to do tshuva. And what does this tshuva accomplish? This tshuva accomplishes that it breaks the klipos. It breaks these husks, these shells, which are have been serving as a uh, as a screen that separates, like an iron screen that separates between them and their Father in heaven. And and this uh, and this happens. This breaking of the klipos, this breaking of the husks, happens through the breaking of the heart and through the bitterness in one's soul over their sin. So it's sort of like this rude awakening that happens. So uh, you know, so the rasha, the person who's who's entrenched in sin, is sort of like similar to when people describe again with you know an addict that they have that they hit rock bottom. So the rock bottom doesn't necessarily have to mean that they've reached this point that's like so low that they're like lying in a sewer somewhere or something like that. Rock bottom can merely be just like having this rude awakening where they have a wake up call of some kind and they realize they recognize what they've done and this leads them to it's very heartbreaking to see see somebody have this rude awakening and um and and it's very embittering at the same time that they're going through a state of bitterness where they realize what they've done and this process this is actually an intrinsic part of the chiva process because this breaking of their heart and this embitterment in their soul causes the breaking of the klipos and the altar rabbi says that this is this is found this teaching is actually found in the zohar where the zohar describes this uh discusses a pasuk in tehillim a verse in tehillim ch chapter 51 verse 19 where it says the sacrifices to god are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart so According to the Zohar, this is an allusion to the fact that through a broken heart, this is how the spirit of impurity of the other side of the Sitra Achra gets broken as well. 
And the ultra herbist says that um, if t- for further exploration of this, you can look up, you can look in the Zohar on Parshas Pinchas on page 240 and on Parshas Vayikra, page 8 and page 5a, as well as the commentary of Rabbi Moshe Zakuto over there. So now the ultra herbist goes on to describe, to say that this type of tshuva that we're talking about, this type of return to God is what, what is referred to as tshuva tata, lower level tshuva. Again, we're going to talk about this all in a lot more detail later on, but there's two basic levels of tshuva. There's lower tshuva and there's higher tshuva. So the lower tshuva is where we're elevating the lower hay to elevate it back up again from its fall where it fell into the external forces. So just to explain that a little bit, so what do we mean by the lower hay? So there's this idea that basically um, there's God's like ineffable name is the Yud Kevavke, the Tetragrammaton, which is made up of four letters. The Yud, the He, then a Vav, and then a He. Now this Tetragrammaton, this is sort of thought to be like the most essential name of God, like sort of like the the origin of all the other names of God, and thus the origin of everything in our world, including ourselves. We were created in the image of God. And each one of the letters of the Yudke Vavke, of this four-letter uh, letter name of God, is it alludes to a different aspect within God. So now is not, not the time to really delve into all of this. There's, you know, there's a lot, a lot that can be said about all of this and many details. But the main thing that you need to know here is what we're really focusing on is the last name, the last letter in the name of God, which is that final hey. And that final hey is an allusion to what's known as God's shechina, God's indwelling. This shechina, this indwelling is the source of all of our all created things. It's all things in our worlds, like every experience that we have, this is all um coming from the Shekhinah. Now this Shekhinah, since it's so attached to our world, so thus when we're in Gullis, when we're living in a state of exile, like we all are now, unfortunately, the Shekhinah comes into exile together with us. So there's an actual part of God that's actually here, right here in the exile together with us and is suffering along with us. So now what happens is that when we sin, God forbid, what we're doing is we're entrenching this lower hay further and further into the gallows, into the captivity. And so if we want to uh, fix this, if we want to rectify this, we need to, rede- one way to think about it is to is that we're redeeming the lower hay from the external forces in which it's trapped and bringing it back up to itself so that it can be restored to the tetragrammaton, to the other three letters in a more uh, direct and cohesive way. And the ultraopic in fact, says this, that he says that this is this is the secret of the galus hashchina, the exile of the shchina, and he brings a teaching to support this from the Gemara and Masechet Megillah, page twenty nine a, where it says galul edom shchina yemahem, that when the Jews were exiled to Edom, the shchina went into exile with them. So again, the shchina is with us here in this exile. So what this means on a practical level is that when a person does what's called, quote unquote, a ma'ase edom, an act of edom, meaning something that is connected, something gayish, something that's not a Jewish act in some way, meaning something that's against the will of God, then what they're doing is they're actually drawing down uh, an aspect of their godly spark that uh, that vivifies their nefesh ruach and neshama, their vivifies their soul and so it's not it's just a simple thing that you're just like doing this act and like, you know, whatever. It's just a little mistake here. It's like you're actually drawing down your godly soul into this act with you, into this space, this space of exile with you. And um, 
these aspects of your soul become vested within such a person's animal soul, um, which comes from the clepos, which comes from the husks, as we described earlier, that are found in the left ventricle of the heart. And this is, and this is how a person can thus this is how a russia such a russia can actually get to the point where um where the klepos where these husks these evil forces are ruling over their small city meaning ruling ruling over their body and so this what this means basically is that they're actually drawing down their nefesh ruach and neshama their different aspects of their soul down into into exile together with them so it's like you know it's kind of like that idea of like you know if you make um a hole in a boat you're not just you know making a little hole in your section of the boat you bring the whole boat down with you so when a person does a sin when a person does something that's against the will of god they're drawing down their whole soul and a part of god himself down into exile together with him and so then you know when a person eventually then hopefully does shuva which as we already described is going to involve the breaking of one's heart and the subsequent subsequent breaking of the spirit of the of impurity of the sitra akhra, uh, then this is going to call all of those negative forces to disperse. And this will eventually cause the um, the lower hay to rise up from the place that it fell to, as is explained elsewhere. So we're going to talk about this again much more in detail when we get to that section on shiva more. But that's the basic idea. So just, uh, so this is the end of the section. And just to bring it again, back all together. So the the normal course of events, like the way that a person should be, like the way that God created us is with the capacity to have our mind rule over our hearts. We have agency. We have free free will, free choice. We can choose wh- how, what we want to do, how we want our behavior to be. However, this agency isn't something that we should take for granted because if we choose the wrong way enough times, God forbid, it actually can be taken away from us. As we see in the case of addiction, I think that's a really prime example. And here in today's Tanya, we just spoke about it in a more spiritual sense in terms of doing things that are against the will of God. That if a person does things against the will of God enough times, they actually no longer will be choosing to do it. And so then, yes, there is still, there's always a way out of it, right? Just like, again, for an addict, there's always a way to heal. There's always a way to get better. And there's always a certain level of agency involved. But the agency isn't any longer, again, just like with the addict, it's not any longer, like that woman doesn't any longer have the the real choice to decide, is she going to go to the casino or not? But what she can do is she can come to a point of reckoning. She can come to a point of realizing that she's sick, realizing that there's a problem and maybe, you know, checking herself into some kind of um, program or something like that to in order to really get to this point of, of needing help, right? So the same thing here too with a Russia, a Russia can get better. A Russia can go back to, to serving God. How do they do this? It's through a broken heart, which this breaking of their heart, this embittering of the spirit that they'll experience, this is actually going to be exactly what is necessary in order to break this these negative forces and allow them to then return to God and thus redeem God himself redeem the Shrina itself back to uh, the, the lower hay back to the the full tetragrammaton to its proper place so that's it for today and we'll continue along these lines tomorrow when we begin a new chapter so stay tuned and I will speak to you then thanks for listening to the it is top podcast hosted by Sarit Switzer this podcast is dedicated in loving memory of my maternal grandfather, Abraham Yitzchak ben Binyamin Cohen of blessed memory. Music by Shoshana. 
If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the show, please share it with others and subscribe on YouTube, Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure to leave us a five-star review. To find out more about the It Is Taught project, including more information on my soon-to-be-published book, please visit our website, itistaught.com. To catch the latest from me, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Looking forward to speaking with you tomorrow, and until then, have a great day.